Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Devin Walker Figueroa, who shares a poem from her forthcoming poetry collection. Here's more from Devin. I'm Devin Walker Figueroa, a writer originally from Kings Valley, Oregon, and currently residing in Brooklyn, New York. My poetry collection, Philomath, is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions this fall, and today I'm going to share with you a poem from that collection. A poem that slows down, that takes the meditative mode. And it also takes as its muse stillness, which I think slowing down naturally approaches. And it explores what can fill those stillnesses, both violences and beauties. Without further ado, if she stands still, she is dancing. Everything is here in this furrowed veil a girl the world might call a blemish lying in dust, her slip lit up with late-day sun. She make-believes she's never been here before, that luck has left her in this field. She knows the stream is close and running low, its surface animating crane flies their numb forms fluttering for miles. The light finds a way through her lids, stains the hour orange, and the scent of dry pine stays so present, it starts to disappear. All the beauty she will ever need has visited itself upon her. Drag her by her braided hair into a room that smells of soap. Heaven will go with her, hold her, until stillness is a vow. Whatever she does next is a dance. Thank you so much again to Devin for sharing. Again, the poem she read is If She Stands Still, She Is Dancing, and it's part of Devin's forthcoming collection, Philomath, out with Milkweed Editions this September. Now here's my conversation with Larissa Pham. Art creates space for understanding, introspection, and intimacy. These themes are especially at play in the work of artist and writer Larissa Pham. You may recognize Larissa's work from her bylines and esteemed publications, including the Paris Review Daily, or, in the case of this episode, from her brilliant work of creative nonfiction, Pop Song, which is described as a book about distances, near and far, the miles we travel to get away from ourselves or those who hurt us, and the impossible gaps that can exist between two people sharing a bed. In this vibrant essay collection, at once both vulnerable and incisive, 
Larissa examines modern intimacy through incisive analysis and personal reflection against the backdrop of an increasingly digital first world. With a critic's eye and an artist's heart, Larissa also draws connections between works of art and acts of life as she navigates heartbreak and searches for meaning. And during a time where connection has taken on a whole new level of importance, Larissa's genre-defying work reminds us to honor the power of art, intimacy, and self. And in this interview, Larissa shared more about the role of pace and paying attention in her writing practice, her thoughts on consumption in our digital age, and the distances she's overcome creatively and beyond. Honestly, it was difficult to find the right words to capture the essence of pop song in this introduction because it elegantly tackles so much, but I'm grateful to Larissa for bringing this book into the world, and even more so for chatting with me earlier this season. So without giving too much more away, Enjoy my conversation with Larissa Pham, author of Pop Song. Well, I am a person living in Brooklyn, very close to the park. And I've been thinking about that because the weather is getting nicer and I've gotten into amateur bird watching. So <laughs> that is something new about me. But I would say on my outside of my work is interesting because I feel like, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more too, but my work is very closely tied to who I am as a person. So it feels like I'm always in dialogue with that, navigating that. It's definitely an interesting tension. And it's something that I've been trying to unravel in some ways. Mm. You know, I mentioned right before we started recording that there's a lot of overlap in our trajectories in terms of how we kind of show up professionally, just thanks to the internet and specifically platforms like Tumblr, which sort of catapulted our generation into this space of being able to share. And then mm -hmm. if we chose to capitalize on that, but we'll definitely get into that. I am just curious though, as you were speaking about bird watching, is there anything that sparked that in particular? Or was it just kind of a result of paying attention? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking about the other half of your question that I actually didn't quite answer, but I've been thinking about the names of things actually. And I think this is tied to what I value. I'm really interested in description and my practice. And I'm from Oregon. I learned a lot about animals and plants just growing up. It, it was just, I don't know, you would go to the woods and you would look at things and you would learn the names of things. So when I started going for walks during quarantine and coming out of the pandemic, at least in New York, still just like getting outside, I became, yeah, really interested in just knowing what the things around me were called and like knowing what the birds were named, knowing the different types of birds, knowing that there are two different kinds of like little brown finches or sparrows that you see. That became a really nice way to engage with the world. I'm right near the park as well. And it's just been a place of respite during this time. Just those little things that we might have overlooked before this period of total transformation. It's been humbling to kind of get back to seeing the world and the things that make it beautiful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And spending time with stillness because I think I've learned it through bird watching. I'm, I'm making it sound like I'm a bird watcher, but I'm really not. <laughs> but looking for like slight movements or seeing like a color in a tree, those are things that I would not have allowed myself or even thought of on a pre-pandemic trip to the park, even if I was doing the same thing. So I am grateful for that. 
It feels like you would have allowed for that though in like a professional or storytelling context. You know, your work is very sort of alert to details and color and just the things that make the work come alive. But before we get into the collection, I'm curious if you've come across a story, whether it's been an article, a poem, book, song, or so on that has made you slow down or impacted your relationship with art or intimacy in a new way. Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad that we're having this conversation right now because I just read this and it's really moved me, in fact. It's this essay by my friend, Michelle Taylor, who is getting her PhD right now at Harvard. And it's pretty academic, but it's called Come Slowly, Eden. And it's part of this packet of essays at Post 45 about interpretive difficulty. And Michelle's piece is all about how her love of this poem Paris by Hope Mirrlees, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was a modernist poet, like how she loved it so much. She like went to Paris to try to understand it. But there's like these, these gaps, these lapses in the text, like her understanding of the text and like this kind of difficulty that like is never really going to be overcome. And Michelle kind of goes into a variety of different places to like think about this like difficulty, this like sort of unbridgeable or like so hyper-specific kind of context of like what a piece of writing can be and also at the same time how you can love something so much you want to understand it. So it's this really beautiful tension and it's all about literature and I love anything that, you know, treats art and culture with like the importance that I think it has, but many of us maybe don't fully admit. So it's, it's just a really beautiful essay. I, and I've been thinking about it ever since I read it. Is there a passage that you think might be worth sharing? Yeah, actually, I can pull it up in a tab. I had it open just, you know how sometimes you leave something open, like just for the vibes? Actually, I do. <laughs> yeah. So I had it open just to like, I don't know, like keep me company. This is from the opening of a section. The section heading is number three. And this is, this is Michelle writing. Let me put this another way. When I write criticism, when I interpret literary artifacts, I like to tell a story. At the very least, I want to tell myself a story. Here's where the poem comes from. Here's where it's been and who took it there. Where do I want to take it? When you love something, you want to know everything about it. At least I do. Where did you spend your childhood? What were your parents like? And then, and then, and then you met me. So I think that's just such a beautiful way to think about encountering a piece of of literature and the fact that like we have encounters with literature and then it meets you is something that I think about a lot and how, you know, it changes us. I think that's kind of a nice runway to talk about your own approach and the way maybe that you've kind of met yourself after writing Pop Song. And just for those who aren't as familiar, Pop Song is sort of characterized as a collection about distances through the lens of art and intimacy. And I have so much to ask regarding that, but I'm curious if there was a distance you had to overcome or a difficulty that you had to overcome as you've grown into yourself as a writer. Yeah, that's a great question. I think on the one hand, and I was I was talking about this last night actually during a book event, but pop song part of it arose out of a desire for ease and to write towards something that 
I was familiar with that I knew about in a way that felt really natural to me. And that felt really good to like allow myself to write exactly the way that I wanted to, not thinking about like an audience or, you know, the place that I was writing for or the style. So that was really liberating. But within that was, I guess, the intellectual and emotional honesty that it demanded of me as a project. And I think if we're thinking about points of challenge or difficulty, I think being honest with one's self is maybe the hardest thing that I've encountered (laughs) in my own practice. Do you think it ever gets easier? Probably not, because I think if you think it gets easier, it just gets hard in a different place, (laughs) is my instinct. I know, it's kind of like a, not a silly question, but it's one of those unknowable things. And I wonder if it's even worth it getting easier though, you know, because then why would we continue to explore and to make things and have these conversations. Yeah. I think it's good when a conflict is kind of pushing you along when there's like an unanswered question or like some sort of unresolvable paradox or dilemma, like pushing the work forward. I think that's what I find interesting about reading anything, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or criticism, that challenge that the author is working around and toward. Craft-wise, I'm not as familiar with criticism. I think just as a reader, the way that it's interwoven with your own personal reflections is really accessible. And I'm grateful for that. Why did it feel like this was the right time to bring this project into the world? You reflect a lot on your early 20s, and I'm not sure how old you are now, but we kind of have this fascination with youth and culture, and you reflect on a lot, but I'm wondering why it felt urgent to you to bring this into the world at this point in your life. That's a great question. I don't know if I could have known where the world would have been when the book came out. I think it is very distinctive that it is coming out as some, but not all, of its potential readership is like emerging from this pandemic. Obviously, it's global and the vaccination situation is like very different across the world. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would have, I don't, I don't know what the world would have looked like otherwise. But I do think it's telling that this book about like closeness and about connection is coming out at a time where people are beginning to really consider what that means to them. And I feel, I guess, like it's a very nice coincidence to have if I can say that like something resulting out of the pandemic is nice. But to speak personally, I think it just felt like the right time. The book spans about 10 years of my life from, I don't know, like age 15 to 25, 16 to 26, like around around then. And I'm 28 now. So I have a little bit of distance from the me of the book. And when I was writing it, it just felt like I was ready to tell this narrative. I had tried to write it more than once before, thinking about it in terms of like just being a narrative of intimacy and a catalog of intimacy and what that looked like. And it really took like falling into this like very deep and passionate and transformative love to make me realize that like my thesis was wrong. And that whole process led to the structuring of the book as it is now. Did you ever envision it existing in another way, having a visual component, just given the themes around art and expression? No, actually, it's funny. I I have gotten this question before. My friend Adelina asked me, and she's a photographer, so she works in multiple forms as well. But you know, I don't, I don't think so. I think I said everything I needed to say for this project in the form that it's in. And I think something great about visual art is 
it's just something different, you know? Like, I could do something on the same themes, maybe. And these are themes that I've been working with my whole life. But if I were to make, like, a painting series about it or a photograph series about it, it would fundamentally be, I think, a little different. And maybe they would be in dialogue, but I don't think they could be part of the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm sure you've gotten questions about the relationship between, you know, your visual art practice and your writing practice. The latter is more of what you identify with now, but was there something that you've had to leave behind in both of those regards to kind of grow into the next phase of your artistic identity? Yeah, that's that's a really thoughtful question. So thank you for asking that. Mm-hmm. It's also very like poignant. Yeah, I studied painting when I was in school. And when I moved to the city, I kind of knew that I was I was giving it up. I was giving up painting. Um, and I didn't have studio space and I wasn't pursuing an MFA. And I also knew that my life was going to take me away from it. And that has been a loss. But at the same time, I know that it is possible for me to paint again. I like never got rid of any of my studio supplies. I like hauled them from apartment to apartment. I was like, no, like I will paint. Like I'm not going to get rid of my giant glass palette. I'm not going to get rid of like these tubes of oil paint that I've been lugging around for years. And I did ultimately have a studio practice for a little bit, had a space at Sunset Park. But I think, you know, there are only so many hours in the day and we do have to like get paid and live our lives. And right now, like my visual practice has definitely taken like a backseat to my writing practice, but I know it's not dead. I think for a while I was really worried it was dead, but it's it's not dead. <laughs> These things don't die. Yeah, it's on pause. And I think that's, you know, where the slowness and continual checking in with our relationship with pace comes in. I think certain things come into our lives at the right time. And on the flip side, certain things take a back seat, but that doesn't mean we have to cast ourselves away from those parts of who we are or what makes us happy. Yeah, it's true. Like those parts of us can like lay dormant, but it doesn't mean that they're gone completely. And it's up to us to know when we can nurture them again. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much that you give in terms of your creative identity and the experience that you have kind of figuring out what you want to say and how you want to say it. Another sort of component of the collection that really just was devastating and beautiful. And I thank you for being so candid in some of these experiences was when you wrote about trauma and Mm -hmm. particularly the essay Haunted. You know, there's so much to sit with, but there was one anecdote where you were talking about your volunteer work at a nonprofit that provided support to survivors of sexual violence. And you started to kind of talk about an exchange you had with a caller on the crisis line that you were, I guess, managing at the time. And you began to walk that caller through a body scan. And essentially, they told you that no one had ever asked them to pay attention to themselves before. Mm-hmm. That really broke me because it was such a powerful reminder of how paying attention and recalibrating our pace can do so much more for ourselves than we tend to think. And so with regard to that, I'm wondering what you had to pay attention to when writing about some of these experiences in a way that could kind of give a voice to them, but also do it where you weren't giving too much of yourself away, if that makes sense. You know, what was important to you there? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's funny, like when you were telling me that anecdote, like it literally happened to me, but my heart was like, oh my gosh, like... (laughs) 
<laughs> because it is powerful. I think we don't necessarily realize these things about ourselves. And I think sometimes we do have to be reminded. Yeah, when I when I was going to those places, it took a lot. It was definitely hard work, but it was work that I wanted to do. And it was almost like I had to check in with myself, like at the top of, I don't know, like a mine shaft or a cave or something. And I'm like strapped in and I have my little headlamp and I'm like, okay, we're going to go in. Like, are you ready to go in? And if I was like, I'm ready to go in, then I would drop down into the cave and like figure out what was in there. But I had to acknowledge that that was the work that I was going to do. And that meant thinking about do I want to write about something in a surface level way because that's okay? I don't have to go there. Or do I want to go there? But then if I'm going to go there, I have to be honest and I have to tell the story right. I was really concerned with doing it right, telling the truth, like at the very least an emotional truth. And when I think about like self-preservation, it almost feels like kind of easy to just be like, well, that's just the stuff that I left out. This is such a good question. I'm like really pondering it. But I think maybe... Making sure that I was doing the emotional work that I needed to do to write the thing that I wanted to write that the text also needed from me required a kind of preparation and a kind of paying attention. But then also knowing when something was like going too far or if something didn't need to be there was also like super valuable as a check-in. But that almost felt like kind of instinctive in a way. There weren't really any parts where I was like, oh, let me backtrack. Because I think I knew like, anything protective like kind of emerged in the writing process if that makes sense yeah and I think it kind of goes back to what I had said about certain things come into our lives or there are certain moments where we arrive at this point where it feels right or you feel ready Mm -hmm. I'm sure to write something like this you have to really be in sync with your own boundaries and what did your time in those spaces your volunteer work advocacy, you know, what did it bring to your storytelling overall? Well, it made me very careful with my language. That's Mm -hmm. for sure. And it just taught me a lot about like structures of power and violence and how these things affect people. I can't unknow that, you know, and I think societally, this concept of like intersectionality, and like the ways that these systems of oppression can overlap and, you know, multiply marginalize people. I think that is something that is sort of gaining more like acceptance as something that happens. And I think people like have it as a framework, which I feel very grateful for. But at the time when I was working, you know, it was like 2016, 2017, and that language felt very valuable to have. And it was like illuminating, I think, in like identifying patterns. So I had that. But I think also like I did do a bit more reporting at that time. And for a while, like I wrote a lot about campus sexual assault. And that made me really think about who are we responsible to when we write these narratives, especially narratives of trauma. Who do we owe it to to make sure that we're telling the story right? We're representing it correctly. We're listening to everyone. We're not like cherry picking ideas or details or quotes. And that's such a huge responsibility. And I feel like I'm super grateful for those experiences. I'm also glad I'm not really doing it right now because it's a lot of work. But yeah, I think that was like very valuable. Absolutely. I've been reading a lot of books that are sort of in conversation with that couple that come to mind are Girlhood by Melissa Phoebos and Mm -hmm. Animal. 
by Lisa Tadeo. And yeah, to see those narratives, I guess, translated in such a thoughtful way. It's been illuminating for me as a reader. I still need to read Melissa's book, but I really, really want to. I've read some excerpts. Yeah, I actually just spoke with her and Forsyth Harmon, who did the illustrations for this podcast. So yeah, her writing stirred up some things that I had forgotten or maybe self-selected and forgotten. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of senses and these sensory experiences in pop song, the essays move between a few different places, but maybe even more than location. Something that I was sort of struck by is how you described time and specifically nighttime. You write about making photographs or kind of enjoying or navigating the quote syrupy darkness of night or the velvet darkness. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point you even say that in darkness, there's information. Could you talk a little bit more about that time for you? And are you able to slow down and have more creative clarity at night? What's your relationship there? Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the darkness contains information line, which is a quote from Ben Donaldson, actually, who was my photography professor, black and white photography professor, who would like, encourage us to expose our photos properly because if you overexpose it, it's like burned, basically. (laughs) There's just too much pigment and you can't tell like what information might be in the shadows. And so if you expose something properly, then all those details come out. There can be information there. Like you're like, oh, like that blob is actually a tree. Or like, oh, like you can see the shape of someone's arm in the shadow and maybe you couldn't see it before. So I like thinking about that (laughs) as a metaphor, which I love metaphors. But yeah, I think nighttime has always been like a liberatory space for people as young people like as students you know as teens night is like kind of a refuge where you're not doing school you're not doing homework your parents aren't like supervising you you maybe have the internet it is this world of possibility and when I was in college and and even like in the years after nighttime was like a time where doors would open. You didn't really know where the night would take you. It was like this place of dizzying possibility. And that was just so exciting to know that like at the end of the day, I always get sad when the sun sets, I get like really sad. But to know at the end of the day that this whole other dimension opened up and everything looked a little different under the streetlights and you maybe dressed a little different than you did in the day and you could be someone like a little different from who you were in class or at work. I mean, I'm not really saying anything new here, but that has always felt like, you know, a place of possibility, a side of promise for me. And then also as I got older, like night became a good time for me to work, to write. There was a period of time when I was in New York where I was trying really hard to finish a novel, which didn't really go anywhere. It actually ended up being rewritten into Fantasia. But I would write between midnight and 4am, like take my laptop to bed and I, I would just write. And no one was contacting me. No one was making any demands. I could just like be present with my thoughts. And that was like very special. And I, I don't do that anymore. But sometimes I think very fondly about that period of time. It's also a time, I think, for intimacy and to have that space to really be with yourself. I've always loved the night and feel the most, not at peace, but maybe the most clear when you kind of remove the distractions. Although in the digital age, it's hard to do that when you have a device at your fingertips. And I want to talk a little bit more about that side of things too, but maybe we can have you read a little bit from the collection first. 
Yeah, that's actually great. Like talking about night and then going into this like Taos section. Let me find it. Here we go. So this is from what we say without saying. And it is a chapter actually where I spend like a couple paragraphs like musing about how thick the night is in New Mexico. And it's so beautiful. This is from what we say without saying. I liked the shape of my days in the mountains. It was like camping. I went to bed early, earlier than I'd ever managed in the city with its distractions of clubs and dive bars. And every day I woke with the sun. I wore your sweatshirt daily filled my thermos with pignon coffee and drifted into the dining hall to find breakfast, oatmeal, blueberries, cold milk. I was there to write. I was there to start to write this book. Maybe this is why you are in so much of it. You were in my mind when it began. Provisionally, it was to be a catalog of intimacies, the closenesses, the small things, the tiny accretions on the surface of a relationship that not only built a relationship but gave it its texture. It felt tautological, but it was the intimacies that let us know we were intimate, the way we became close to each other. I was intrigued by the phenomena, so separate and articulable, but how the emotional language I found myself developing so often seemed to be shared with others, the universal and the particular. It was a book of surfaces, in other words, or so it began that way, and so I considered myself a sponge, eagerly absorbing the details of the world, ready to identify, to isolate, to describe. But the mechanics of closeness can be feigned, and defining intimacy itself, of thought, of mind, still seemed elusive to me. I'm only realizing now that my approach was itself a study of a medium, of intimacy's various containers, and not its content. What in all of these vessels was I trying to hold? I love that passage so much. Kind of like the book's origin story. Yeah, it's it's so beautifully put. And I think getting into some of the core explorations that I like to delve into on this podcast, I want to talk about pace. Mm-hmm. You know, how would you describe your relationship with pace? And how has it evolved in the context of creating art or telling stories in our digital age? interesting because I don't think of myself as like a particularly slow paced person like I think my sort of standard is like go 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 and so I can't anymore I'm always like taking on a bunch of things and then kind of like collapsing at the end of it like a runner at the end of the race but at the same time like I think day to day I'm like that kid and this is how I was as a kid too like my family calls me like a space cadet but I was always the kid who would like look at things for a really long time and I am still that way like I do look at things for a really long time and I think it's why I'm able to do what I do in the texts that I write so I think on like a very granular level like I do pay attention and I think pay attention is related to moving slowly but on a macro level I'm always like taking on too much (laughs) Ironically, I'm the same way. You know, every time I have a conversation for slow stories, it is a reminder to know that it's okay to move fast. I mean, the world isn't set up to always be slow, but to kind of recognize that you have a choice in terms of how you kind of move through it. And I think, yeah, paying attention is so integral to your work as a critic and then just as a writer. And, you know, with slow stories, our whole thing is about, you know, slowing down and telling stories in this digital age and kind of was born from my own mistakes 
in terms of how I moved through this landscape and not really knowing how to draw my own boundaries. And I'm curious, you know, if you think about movements like slow fashion and slow food, what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to you in the context of writing this book or just how you hope to kind of continue telling stories. Yeah, I mean, I think so much of what I care about you know, deeply valuing art or literature or music or any other form of culture requires spending time with it, right? You go to a museum, you spend a couple hours there. It's best if you move slowly and you can appreciate what you see. It feels great. For me, it feels like really rejuvenating to do that because I'm like really spending time with something. And I think like that's like one of the greatest gifts you can give is the gift of attention. And I think a lot about being deliberate. I think a lot about when I write, I wasn't always like this. I wrote a lot more when I was younger and I wrote a lot more stuff that felt like copy. And now I'm like, well, there's so much stuff in the world. How can I make sure that what I'm adding to it is like worthwhile, at least to me to know that I'm putting something out into the world that like I've paid attention to, which I think is very tied to slow fashion and slow food and and thinking about like where things come from. I mean, provenance is an art term, but I think it's helpful to, to use it when we think about like what we put in our lives. It feels good to like surround yourself with things that are careful and things that you've put thought into and that feel good and spiritually or physically nourishing. And I think it never hurts us to be, when we can, very deliberate. I think that's always a positive. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder too, you know, you talk about throughout the book setting up a shared Instagram account as a way Mm. to kind of inspire another form of communication. And it seems like whatever you shared there was very deliberate. You know, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that motivation and maybe how it impacted your outlook on intimacy. Yeah. The Instagram account is interesting because it was such a cipher. It was funny because we were using this platform, Instagram, which is like, it can be very commercial and it can be very like outward facing, but we were using it for this like really insular personal project. At times, I think it almost became too fraught. It was like, this is the only text that I have. I mean, it wasn't even text. This is the only form of speech that I have to share with you. It's so much pressure to make the perfect image to share. But at the same time, there was this like nice kind of contrast of being almost able to like fall back onto the language of images and know that I didn't have to be literal with what I was trying to say. Like it was an exchange, of course, there was content, like there was things that we were saying to each other. There was a material truth or like emotion that was behind all of it. But the form for it was different. And that, yeah, that became like very valuable, even as it like did exert like a kind of pressure. I mean, platforms like that and just generally the digital landscape has sort of forever changed the way that art is not only created, but also consumed. And you also talk a lot about sharing culture and performance. And at one point you write, And for those listening, I'm also quoting from the arc, so I'm not sure if it varies from the final book, but you said, one seems like it must cancel out the other. As viewers, we must either deny the relationship or deny the abuse. But a photograph isn't an argument. It can simply be the way a depiction is just that, a depiction. It's up to us as viewers to grapple with how we consume the pain of others, how we process our own relationship to woundedness. And I thought a lot about consumption 
in this passage in terms of what we've endured collectively, the political reckonings, the time spent in isolation. And given all of that, do you think we've learned anything about responsibly consuming pain or experiences from this year? You know, I I wish I could say we could. That passage is about Nan Golden and something that I hope that I have done in this book is like show that Nan's work who, you know, I, I look up to her so much. I just think she's like a genius. Even Nan Golden, whose work is so associated with like these kind of almost tropes, like her work has like continued to evolve far past anyone like me could have like tried to limit it. And I think that's really beautiful. And she's also just done like some amazing like advocacy and like activism around the opioid epidemic, calling for accountability. But I mean, I think it's like a lesson that we learn and then we forget it again. I think, you know, it always reaches a breaking point and everyone's like, okay, we need to stop consuming like all of these images of death or trauma or like we need to stop asking people to like share their trauma. And then everyone's like, okay, we're going to stop doing that. But then the cycle kind of turns again. And yeah, I think if we have learned anything from this moment... I think it is about how fragile the systems are that support everyone. I think like a lot of things about how society works have been called into question. And that feels really promising. I think that there is going to be a very productive agitation around this because I think, you know, everyone woke up to just like how impossible it is to survive, especially when so much is like pulled out from under us. So I feel good about that. But at the same time, like, you know, the capitalist machine keeps churning. I don't know if it will stop. (laughs) I don't know either, but I think we're definitely at a turning point where we are asking those questions about what it means to recalibrate. And on that subject, is there a question that you hope people start asking more often? Hmm. I think there are a lot of questions that people have been asking and, and I think we'll continue to keep asking. I think it would be helpful if we all take a moment every now and then to just be like, do I need this? Is it fueling something that I care about? How can I work toward a world that I want to see? Things like that. I think sometimes when we're caught up in the grind of the day to day, we can like let some of those things go and we can start doing things that go against our nature. And I think even if we can't stop those things right away, or even if we find ourselves having to make challenging decisions, I think like just checking in and just saying like, well, is this, is this something that I want? Is this something that I care about? Is this something that is going to harm things that I believe in? I think is a useful check-in. I think we've also always been checking in with ourselves about this, but it feels more relevant now. We've all become like so much more aware of human fragility and like human mortality. It will only become more important as we become connected again, physically and digitally. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of that stems from overwhelm and not knowing how to create that space for that check-in. So I'm glad that we can sort of end there. And, you know, there's so much I think we could speak about in terms of pop song and your work and the state of the world but I would love to close things out by having you share one more passage from pop song yeah absolutely and yeah this has been such a great conversation it is it's been nice to actually like slow down for it and um really think about these things and like what do I mean when I say we care about something so I'm gonna read from body of work Yeah, this is pretty relevant to our conversation, I think. So this is from Body of Work. 
that the beginning of my career writing in public coincided with the development of my sexual objection is not, I think, a coincidence. In the mid-2010s, the dominant mode by which a young, hungry writer could enter the conversation was by deciding which of her traumas she wished to monetize. The struggle, be it anorexia, depression, casual racism, or perhaps a sadness like mine, which blended all three, was described lyrically, articulated through the lens of a recent book or film, and hung out to dry. For this, I was paid the industry rate of $150. It was 2015 and everyone was a pop culture critic, writing from the seat of experience. Representation mattered and we had our grievances, shaken free by a new, easily accessible language of social justice. I write about it cynically now, but all of this was important. To shifting culture, to creating literature, to developing a shared language toward describing a better world. The problem was that I, along with so many others, was doing it for the first time. The process required us to bear ourselves with little in the way of material or emotional protection. We were confessionalists again, but instead of one another, our audience was the world at large, eager to hear tales of flagellation. Pain resonates. Pain is an unlocked room with the door shut. I paid too much to stay away from the source of it, so I kept walking in. For online outlets, I wrote about heartbreak and about systemic racism about my struggles with mental health, about my eating disorder, about casual sex, glorifying my methods of coping, which became, in itself, a way of coping. At times, the disclosure did feel like bravery, and I believe that it was deserved. But other times, I keenly felt the cynicism of it, selling out some minor trauma for a byline in a news peg. And in all of this, I found yet another framework to lodge my pain inside, another way to show off my bruises, more lucrative than any online diary or camera roll. It was and is tempting to dwell in this close, sticky space, to crave being hurt, to glorify the wound, to want to stay interesting and close to the flesh, poking at the bruise. As long as I have my pain, I know that I can feel something. As long as I have my bruises, I can show that my hurt exists. To stop being hurt, no, to stop calling yourself a hurt person, I've realized, means accepting a different way of existing in the world, a new one with different challenges. I worry that in writing this down, I'm showing you the ways I made myself abject. But it was useful before, and I've never liked self-help books where the writer comes across as holier than thou, already healed and already recovered. I want to honor the girl I was, whose pain was real. It's her I write for, too. That was Larissa Pham, author of Pop Song. You can order Pop Song anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Larissa on social at LRSPHM. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.